there are many um, important questions in life, right? All of us are looking for the answers to those questions. Example, who should I marry? What career should I pursue? How can I have a happy marriage? How should I raise my children? And this is a biggie for a lot of people who are Christians. How can I know the will of God? Those are very important questions. We look for the answers. They are important, but listen to me. Those questions are secondary questions. They're secondary because the answer to those questions... The answer to those questions center on the answer to the most important question. What do you think about Jesus? The answer to all those other questions, the answer to those questions come from, what do you think about Jesus? This is the most important question in the world. There is not another question that we can think of that's more important than this question. I say that because once you have answered that question, you've settled who the Lord of your life is. And once you've settled that question, all other questions find their answer under the authority of God and His Word. Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. It's referenced some 25 times in the New Testament. And in each instant in the New Testament, it's always applied to Jesus. Always. Making this a prophetic psalm. Psalm 110 was written 1,000 years before Jesus was ever born. Martin Luther, a great reformer who wrote the 95 Theses and nailed it to the castle door at Wittenberg, was so captivated by Psalm 110 that he wrote 120 pages of commentary on it. Aren't you glad Martin Luther's not here preaching on Psalm 110 today? Faith in Jesus, which is absolutely necessary for the forgiveness of sin, that faith in Jesus must be, has to be grounded in a knowledge of what God's Word has to say about the person of Jesus. Psalm 110 answers the question, if you're looking at your handout, this main idea, who is Jesus the Messiah? Who is Jesus the Messiah? Verses 1 through 3, if you're looking at your handout, we've outlined it this way, Jesus is the King of the earth. Make no mistake, Jesus is the King of the earth. Notice verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You notice prior to verse 1, there are some words there that say a psalm of David. So we know from these words that King David wrote Psalm 110. And King David, moved by the Holy Spirit of God, writes these words that we have. And at the very beginning, verse 1, we read, The Lord says to my Lord. Notice something about these words here. Notice the uppercase, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, versus the lowercase letters of the word Lord. David, again, through the Holy Spirit, is allowed to overhear a heavenly conversation between God the Father, Lord, Yahweh, and David's Lord, who is Jesus. Can you imagine that? David, inspired by the Spirit of God, he's allowed to 
hear this conversation that God's having with God the Son. He's allowed to hear it. This conversation between two members of the Godhead. David hears a conversation between God the Father and God the Son, God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, from a theological standpoint, for just a little bit of an excursion here, God is often referred to when He's talked about in theological terms as a trinity. Now, you'll never find the word trinity in the Bible, but we use that word to reference God. And that word means that even though God is one in essence, He exists as a unity of three distinct persons. And we know those as what? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each of the persons is distinct from the other, yet they're identical in their essence. In other words, each one is fully God, and yet there are not three gods, but there's what? One God. Now, I've just caused you to have a, a brain cramp right now, right? You're, you're trying to process that. Um, If you want to talk more about that, uh, I'd be glad to discuss that with you. The Trinity is one of the more difficult theological things to get our minds wrapped around. Uh, We can try to explain it. I think we can go to the Bible and we can explain it well. But sometimes we just don't fully understand, right? We can't get our minds wrapped around that. Here's what I want you to understand. If God was a God that you and I could fully explain, He would not be God. And so... David, again, he's allowed to hear this conversation between two members of the Godhead, two members of the Trinity. And David hears a conversation, again, between God the Father and God the Son. So David is serving as a prophet, if you will. Notice David hears God, the Lord, say to my Lord, Jesus. God is speaking to Jesus here. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. God the Father says to His Son, Jesus, I will defeat your enemies. Remember, this psalm was written how many years before Jesus ever came on the scene? A thousand years. And God is already saying to His Son that I will defeat your enemies. Sit at my right hand. This refers to a position of Jesus after the resurrection, after He ascends into heaven. Go to the book of Acts, you will see that. If it actually take place, Jesus ascends into heaven. And He sits at the right hand of the Father. The right hand is a place of honor, power, and authority. God says, sit, my son, at my right hand. It's a picture of exercising authority. Psalm 110 looks to the present. Jesus, at this very moment, is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Not to rest, but to what? Rule. Jesus is the King. Notice that word, footstool. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Footstool is symbolic of complete and total victory. Complete and total victory. God's Son, the chosen King, one day, even though He's the King of the world now, He will place His feet on the necks of His enemies. And all this will result as the work of God the Father. God is telling Jesus, you are the king of the world. The day is coming when all your enemies will be defeated. There's a major difference between what God says about Jesus and what man says about Jesus, right? You stop people on the street and you ask them what they think about Jesus, you're probably not going to get this answer, right? Man may mock, he may ridicule Jesus, but those who don't repent and trust Jesus... 
will be crushed one day as His enemy. But those who trust Jesus, what do they have to look forward to? One day we will reign with Him in a new heaven and a new earth as His people. God is saying to us through His prophet David here, if you will, King David, Here's the conversation, David, I've having my son, and I'm telling him, he is the king of the earth. The reign of Jesus as king at the right hand has two aspects. Notice there, in verses 2 and 3, first in verse 2, <coughs> excuse me, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. In, in, in the Hebrew, those words, your mighty scepter, some of you have a translation that reads, reads rod of your strength. But those words, your mighty scepter, in the Hebrew language, they're at the beginning. And in Hebrew and in Greek, when something's put at the front of the sentence, what do you think they're doing? This is important. They're putting emphasis on that. Your mighty scepter, the Lord sends forth. The scepter is symbolic of a king's domination, strength, and power, and his authority. Notice once again this the Lord, God the Father, who's He's the one who's doing this. It's God doing this. This mighty domination, this authority comes from God and results in all of Jesus' enemies being His footstool. And He rules in their midst. Look again at verse 2. It talks about ruling in the midst of His enemies. Rule is another. It's a command here. It's an imperative. God is saying to the Son, You rule. You are the King of the earth. You will rule. Jesus, the Messiah, will sit with His feet one day on His enemies' necks and He will rule as King among them. It doesn't look like in our day and time, right? But there is coming a day when Jesus will completely dominate and rule this world. It's coming. Now you and I, as His people, we look for that day and we long for that day. We love that day, right? That brings us something. It it stirs our hearts. Because that rain one day is our freedom. It's our joy. It's our hope. Verse 3, notice what it says there. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Jesus will have willing volunteers who freely join Him in the day of His domination, the day of His rule. In other words, His people will willingly embrace His kingship. What's the opposite of willingly? Being forced, right? You and I will willingly embrace that. His people love that. We look for that day. Verse 3 says that these... Uh, who offer themselves, do so in holy garments. Just as Jesus is holy, just as He is the King, just as He is holy, His servants are to be what? Holy. These who willingly submit to Him and His kingship, it says there's a picture here that we have holy garments. And the, the idea there is that those who willingly submit to Him are what? Holy. they got on holy garments, they are Holy. Those who belong to King Jesus do so because of what? Not your holiness, but whose holiness? His holiness. His righteousness. See, when you repent of your sin and you trust in Jesus, 
it's often referred to as the great exchange. God reaches down and He takes your sin and He pulls that away and then He applies to your life what? The righteousness of Jesus. So these people here are those who know Christ as the King of the earth. They know Him as Lord and Savior because it says they have on holy garments. His righteousness has been applied to their lives and as a result of repentance and faith in Christ. Without holy garments, you're His enemy and you'll be crushed. In Philippians chapter 2, we hear Paul say the words that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Say it with me, church. Jesus Christ is Lord. Now listen carefully. Paul is not saying that there will be a universal salvation so that everyone who has ever existed will become a believer and enjoy heaven forever. That's not what Paul is saying. Instead, he's acknowledging there will be a a universal recognition of the kingship of Jesus by His enemies and by His followers that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that He is in fact the Lord that David says He is here in Psalm 110. There's coming a day. God's Word says that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. That doesn't mean everyone will accept Christ, but what does the Bible tell us? There will be a day when everyone who has ever lived in the history of the world, they will bow a knee and they will confess that Jesus is Lord. It's coming. Lastly, in verse 3, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now, you've read the everything prior to that, you're kind of thinking, okay, I'm kind of tracking with this. I may not understand everything fully, but I kind of understand to a certain degree. Then you get to this last part of the verse, and you're kind of like, what? Okay. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now, uh, I say that because I want you to not beat yourself up, because a lot of Bible scholars are kind of confused about this phrase as well. That brings you great relief, does it not? Yeah. This phrase is unclear as to its precise meaning. Uh, some indicate that it could refer to your people that he talked about at the beginning of verse 3. And it would refer to their beauty and their brilliance and their attractiveness and their holy garments, which, will that be the case? Sure it will be. It, it could be that. But I take the view that it's referring to Jesus and not us, who never loses His strength or His glory. Here's what you need to understand. All of mankind will experience one or the other. Is Jesus your king or are you his enemy? There is no third option. We hear a lot of that today, right? Is is there a third option? Is there something in the middle I can choose? It's not like let's make a deal, right? You get three doors, right? No, there is... Two options here. Either Jesus is king or you are His enemies. His enemies will be destroyed. God says so. So if you sit here today and you've never trusted in Christ, the Bible is clear. You are an enemy of God. If you remain in that situation, well, you can pretty much do the math as they say. That will not turn out good for you. 
Is Jesus your king or is he your conqueror? And let me ask you this as a way of application. Have you, Christian, listen to me, have you forgotten that your Jesus is the king of the world? Have you forgotten that? How many of you listened to the meditation for preparation I sent out this week? There was a song in there, right? The king of the world. And what she's saying, I'll kind of put it in redneck terms. I kind of forgot who you are. I've been living this life knowing you and doing things my way. I've forgotten that you're the king of the world. Is that, us? is that some of us here today? Have we forgotten that Jesus is the king of the world? Which means He's to be the king of what? Your life. Jesus is to be Lord of your life. Now my question, is He? I'm talking to professing believers here today. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Is He king of your life? Church, is Jesus Lord over our church? I certainly hope He is. I believe He is. But let me remind you of something, church and Christian. You don't make Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord. Whether you make Him Lord or not, He is Lord. What are you supposed to do to submit to the Lordship of Jesus? To submit means to yield the will and control of yourself with reference to Jesus. It is yielding to the will and control of Jesus. That's what that is. Again, Jesus is Lord. There is no other option. This means that when Scripture commands you to do something, what do you do? When you read something in Scripture and you're commanded to do it, what do you do? If Jesus is Lord, what do you do? You submit to that, right? We must understand that we can't pick and choose what we will do as it relates to God's Word. We like to do that, right? We like to do that as individuals. We like to do that as a church sometimes. We, yeah, that's in there, but I'm not... Yeah, you know, I've had a conversation with a, a dear, godly, precious saint a few years ago. I was trying to explain to this person something in the Scriptures. And I love this person dearly. And they love me. I'll... We walked through a passage of Scripture and explained it. And she says, I understand that's in there, but... Can I tell you something? There are no buts when it comes to the command of God. Whatever God's Word says, that's it. Jesus is Lord. And you as an individual believer, and we as a church, we need to get this understanding that Jesus is Lord. He is the King of the earth. God says that Jesus is the King of the world. Now notice next in verse 4. Look at your handout. <coughs> God says that Jesus is the eternal priest of the earth. He's the eternal priest of the earth. Verse 4 uh, records the second statement of God to Jesus the Son. The Lord has sworn He will not change His mind. You... My son, or a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Depending on where you're raised, you, Melchizedek gets pronounced a lot of different ways. Aren't you glad your mother didn't name you? Yeah. Now, question. 
When God says something, it's important, right? This is yes. Yes. When He swears something, it's especially important, right? You were raised as a kid not to do what? Don't ever swear. And the Bible tells you not to do that. It just says, let your yes be yes, your no be no, right? The only person who can swear is God. The Lord has sworn. God is taking an oath. God is making a promise. And by the way, God doesn't break His promises. God doesn't lie because He cannot lie. When God says something that's important, He he makes a promise. Notice the words, and will not change His mind. I don't know about you, when I read those words, that gets my attention. Does you that that grabs my attention? God wants us to see that He's declared that His Son Jesus is to be the priest for how long? Forever. You ever watched the movie Sandlot? Forever. According to the order of Melchizedek. Now you're sitting there going, "All right, I preach. I hope you're going to tell us what that means." I am. Now we see this name Melchizedek two other times in the Bible. In the book of Genesis chapter 14. And there he's called a priest of the Most High God. And then in Hebrews chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, that word means the king of righteousness. So we have here in Psalm 110 a king of what? Righteousness. But God says that king will also be a what? He'll be a priest. Now, I think most of us have an idea of what a priest is, but uh, just to make sure, I uh, don't insult your intelligence, but a priest acts as a mediator between God and who? Man. He intercedes for man before God. Now listen, uh, don't misunderstand me. I just want to get some clarification here. Uh, this is not a Catholic priest, okay? That's not what's going on here. And uh, I'm not throwing mud at Catholics. But this is not a Catholic priest. This is not going in the booth and confessing to someone on the other side. A priest acts as a mediator between God and man. He intercedes for man before God. In the Old Testament, a priest would offer daily sacrifices for his own sin as well as the sins of God's people. Do you hear what I said? He would offer sacrifices for who? Himself and for His people. God says here in Psalm 110 that Jesus would be a priest like who? Melchizedek. But there's some major differences. The book of Hebrews tells us, and that's why it's so important to read the book of Hebrews in relation to this term here. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is superior and that He didn't offer daily sacrifices for His own sin. Why? Because He what? He never sinned. He didn't need to offer sacrifices for sin. For he offered a sacrifice for who? His people. Psalm 110 says that the priest, Jesus, will not be like the earthly priest. He, notice the word forever. No one will ever succeed or come after Jesus. There is not another priest, right? Jesus is the one. God has sworn that Jesus is the forever priest. Jesus is also a priest, not just for Israel, but for all the nations. And can I tell you something sitting here? 
all of us Gentiles, that's good news for us, right? That is wonderful, glorious news for us who are Gentiles. That this priest is not just for Israel, but he is for the nations. He is for all the peoples. According to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says, He, this priest, Jesus, is able to say to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Did you hear what this priest does, what Jesus does? He is able to say to the uttermost those who what? Draw near to God through who? Him. You go through this priest. You go through Jesus to get to God. All of that to say that Jesus is what? The way. He is the priest. God says here in verse 4 that Jesus is the one mediator between Himself and man. Jesus is the way to God. No one comes to God but through Jesus. And I believe Jesus said something similar to that Himself, right? John chapter 14. No man comes to the Father but through me. Now let me ask you this as a way of application. Does Jesus, the forever priest, does He represent you before God? If not, then you have no standing before God, right? You're sitting here today and you've turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus. You have someone that is a go-between between you and God. If you don't know Jesus, it's kind of like that phrase, you're on an island by yourself. And that's never a good situation, right? If Jesus is forever priest doesn't represent you before God, you have no standing before God. There's no peace for you because you are condemned in your sin. If Jesus is not between you and God, you face God alone. And can I tell you something? That is not good. God has established that you come to Him through who, church? Jesus, this forever priest. Psalm 110 says that to think correctly about Jesus, you must know Him as the King of the world and as the priest. The one who mediates between you and God. There is no other way to God but through Jesus. And listen, church... How long is Jesus going to be that mediator between us and God? Forever. I see some of you. You might make it on Sandlot they ever do a remake of that. Some of you got that part down pretty good. Lastly, verses 5 through 7. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the priest. And listen, up to this point, this has been really good news, right? been wonderful, glorious, who our Savior, who our King is. But we get to verses 5 and 7. It says, Jesus is the future judge of the earth. Listen to <coughs> these verses. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter the kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook, by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Verses 5 and 7 take us back to the book, of, or take us, excuse me, not back, but from the book of Hebrews, where we see Jesus as the priest, and it kind of transports us, if you will, to the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. And there we're seeing the second coming of Christ. In Revelation 19, we see Jesus 
Read that when you get home. We see Jesus forcibly subdue His enemies. Notice what I said. He forcibly he subdues His enemies and He establishes His kingdom rule. At that time, there will be a judgment upon the nations. Verses 5 and 7 are describing that judgment. Jesus is often referred to as the, the Lamb of God, right? He takes away the sins of the world. When you and I think lamb, what do we think? Fluffy, hold it, pet it. That wasn't the picture that Jesus was. He was a lamb that was slaughtered for the sins of the world. But the Lamb of God is not just a lamb, but He is a warrior lamb. Our king, our priest, listen, I don't I don't be disrespectful here, but our king is no patsy. He's no sissy. He's a warrior. Jesus is a warrior. Verse 5, it says, The Lord is at your right hand. Jesus is sitting at God's right hand. Sitting at God's right hand is a great joy, as I said, for His people. But it should be very fearful for you who don't know Jesus. Notice what it says there. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. Verse 3 talked about the day of His power. It's now called what? The day of His wrath. Jesus will shatter kings. Shatter means... What do you think that means? You ever knock something off the table and it's shattered? What's it do? Breaks into pieces. Are you getting the visual? Jesus one day is going to shatter. He's going to break to pieces the kings of this earth. No ruler, no earthly king, no president, no presidential candidate will stand against God. Verse 6, He will execute judgment among the nations. Now listen, judge is not referring here to... We kind of look at this and we're going, Jesus is a a warrior and He's coming back. And we kind of look at this judging as referring to like a military uh, thing, right? The word execute is a judicial term. It's not a military term, it's a judicial term. And what does the judge do in the courtroom? To bring conviction, he says what? He speaks and it happens, right? How did God bring the world into existence? He what? He spoke. He'll not need to do anything different on this day but other than speak and He will shatter His enemies. He will break them to pieces. The nations that have rejected Him will be judged and they'll be found guilty. Listen, nobody gets a pass. Not even the good old USA is going to get a pass. It says, He shall fill the nations with dead bodies, corpses. Notice the word fill. What does fill mean? Fill. Full. This judgment is going to involve what? Many people. It says, He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will. Execute the heads of many countries. Nobody is going to stand against Jesus. Several Bible scholars believe this is pointing us back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Where we have the first promise of a Savior. That's right. 
Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is the first place we see mentioned. It doesn't say Jesus. It doesn't even use the word Messiah. But it tells us there's a what there? There is a head crusher. Right? The one who will crush the head of Satan. Most Bible scholars, which are far smarter than I am, believe that that's pointing us back to this. And it's a way of saying that one day Jesus will crush the head of Satan and all those who follow his lies and his evil ways. All will be crushed. Verses 5 and 6 tell us that Jesus will bring to nothing all those who oppose him and his kingdom. You know, some of us sit here and on the inside we're, we're jumping up and down about that, right? For one, we're glad it's not us. But if we're jumping up and down on the inside because we think, yeah, you're going to get your due one day, that's not what we should be thinking. We should be pleading for God's mercy to save those people. But they don't experience this judgment. Verse 7. Another one of those verses, like to this point you've been tracking, and all of a sudden you're like, okay, here we go again. <coughs> he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Verse 7 is a poetic way of making the point that Jesus will carry out his judgment quickly and that no one's going to escape. You're going, really? The picture here is that of a warrior king. And before I go into this detail, just make a note of this. First Samuel chapter 30. And read this later on. First Samuel chapter 30. A lot of Bible scholars believe this is a picture of a warrior king who's in pursuit of his enemies. And in the initial battle, the king... In the redneck way, he puts a smack down on his enemies, but some of them get away. But he pursues those who get away. And he he briefly, on the way to track them down, stops along a brook, and he takes a drink of water, and it refreshes him, and he continues his pursuit of his enemies until they are utterly defeated. Then he lifts up his head in victory. I gave you 1 Samuel chapter 30, because if you go there... You see King David do the same thing. He's in a battle. He's defeated his enemies. Some of them escaped. David says, they will not get away. And David, who comes from King David? Jesus. Which that's pointing us to who? Jesus. David goes after his enemies. He stops by the brook and he takes a drink of water. And guess what he does? He goes after them and he utterly destroys the remainder of his enemies. Verse 7 is telling us that Jesus will gain a total victory over His enemies when He comes back. None will escape. Jesus pursues His enemies until they're all defeated. Now here's the application. To think correctly about Jesus, you have to understand that He is the future judge of the earth. You have to. We need to understand that while we are now in a time of grace, when God is withholding His wrath from sinners... A day of judgment is coming when everyone opposed to God and His Son will be crushed. You and I have a lot of work to do, church, right? Jonathan Edwards, which most of us know Jonathan Edwards because of what his famous sermon, what? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Let me give you this quote from Jonathan Edwards and listen to what he says. The ideas and images in men's mind are the invisible powers that constantly govern them. The ideas 
And images in men's mind are the invisible powers that constantly govern them. What's he saying? What's in here is what causes you to do what you do. Who is Jesus the Messiah? What do you think about Jesus? How you think determines how you live. It's of the utmost importance to think correctly about Jesus. He is the King. He is the eternal priest. And He is the future judge of the earth. So what, you say? Number one, quickly. Because Jesus is King, you should submit to His Lordship willingly. Because He is the King, you should submit. Listen to Isaiah 45, 22-23. Write that down and Listen. Isaiah 45, 22-23. God says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth in my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. You're sitting here today and you're lost. God has sworn that that's going to happen. Either you turn willingly now and are saved or you'll be crushed one day into submitting to Jesus when He comes back. Every knee will bow. Christian, let me say this to you. Submitting to Jesus is not an option. You don't obtain your get-out-of-hell-free card and then do your own thing. That's not what it means to follow Jesus. That's not in the Bible. A person who calls Jesus Lord but isn't growing in obedience is in for a rude awakening one day. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Because Jesus is the priest, second point of application, because Jesus is priest, you should apply His intercession with joy. Christian, Jesus is the mediator. He's the go-between between you and God. He has secured once and for all the forgiveness of your sin. It's a done deal. He never has to do that again. When you sin, listen to me, you have an advocate with a Father who is there pleading His blood as the just satisfaction for the penalty of your sins. You no longer need to feel condemned before God because Jesus is your priest. Confess all your sins to Him and apply the cleansing blood of Christ to your life. Yes, you do that your whole life as a Christian. And when the enemy accuses you, you can overcome him by what? I claim the blood of my Savior. I claim the blood of my priest. As a priest, Jesus is your access to the Father's presence. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What is that telling us? Because of Jesus, He's your priest, you draw near. 
Not only can we pray through Jesus, but Jesus is also interceding for God for us. I read this earlier. He is able to say to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Think of it. Right now, every day, every moment of every day, Jesus is interceding for you before the Father. I like that, don't you? Ooh, that's good. Three. Because Jesus is judge, we should be fearful and avoid judgment. Because Jesus is judge, we should be fearful and avoid judgment. And I should have told you, you've probably already seen it. Those are on the back of your handout. Quickly here. I know I've said that three times, but the quicklies are getting quicker. Christian, I, I had to ask myself this question this week. And I knew the answer. It wasn't a matter of knowing the right answer. It was a matter of, am I doing what the answer I know to be true is? Do you believe that sinners will be judged one day? Do you believe that? Do you believe they go to hell? Do you believe that? You have the answer that these people need. We're going to stand before God one day. Do we believe they are judged by God and they will go to hell. Now it's quite possible some of you or someone here thinking today, I still have time. I don't see God judging me, so what's the hurry? God is a God of love, and besides that, I'm a pretty good old boy anyway. God won't judge me. You listen to me, you listen to me carefully. That's a lie straight out of hell. That lie will send you to hell. My exhortation to you is don't believe that. Today is the day of salvation. What do you think about Jesus? Let's pray.